Hello and welcome to Coasting Country, the official podcast powered by the science of the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. I'm your host, Brian Scott-Smith. We've all been living with COVID-19 for months now and feel we've probably heard every story there is about it. But there are always new developments and in this podcast we're talking with Doug Brackney, a scientist at the station about work he and a team of scientists have been doing since the coronavirus pandemic began. Doug, thanks for joining us on the podcast. You work for the Connecticut Agriculture Experiment Station. You have many hats, but we're today talking about COVID-19 and wastewater and also a new COVID-19 test for people. So explain to us what your role is in connection with these two aspects. The primary hat has been studying vector-borne diseases, so tick and mosquito-transmitted diseases. But when the coronavirus came and the pandemic started, a lot of the facilities started shutting down, the laboratories started shutting down both the state and university levels, and then they really started restricting the amount of research that could be done there. And they really limited it to uh, essential research directed at finding either cures or diagnostic assays or understanding the biology, immunology of coronavirus. And so I was uh, working at home and I just felt this need to be able to contribute. I have expertise in virology um, and experience working in the laboratory. And I really wanted to, to try to, you know, offer what I, my knowledge um, and skills uh, to, to the effort to, to work on coronavirus. And, and so I reached out to uh, a colleague, uh, Nathan Grubaugh at uh, Yale School of Public Health. And I just said, hey, is there any way I can help? Because I knew that um, he had uh, started early on working with uh, Albert Coe and doing some genomic surveillance and uh, early diagnostics for uh, coronavirus at Yale School of Public Health. And so I just reached out to him and I said, hey, any way I can help, just let me know. Put me in contact with Jordan Pecchia over also at Yale, who's starting to uh, look at uh, wastewater treatment facilities and seeing if we can actually surveil and track coronavirus activity at 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 a community wide level by analyzing wastewater samples. And so that was sort of the first project. And then at the same time, when it came to the diagnostics of coronavirus early on, there was a lot of bottlenecks in the pipeline because it wasn't expected. There was only a handful of assays that were approved by the CDC and the FDA for detection of this virus. And with those FDA approvals, they're very specific. So you have to use this kit from this company and these primers and everything has to be very specific. You can't have any flexibility. And so what happened is early on is that you had a lot of bottlenecks in the supply chain because there were only certain companies that could do it and they couldn't keep up with the demand for producing these RNA extraction kits, for producing the PCR reagents, for doing all these things. And so one of the goals was to try to find ways that we can open up the market so that you can use products from these other companies that had plenty of product but weren't certified as being part of the um, or weren't validated to be part of the diagnostic assays and so that was sort of a a sort of a second project that came out of what we were doing we're going to get into that uh, second project in in a while but let's get back to this one with regards to your working with Yale and the COVID-19 and looking at wastewater because we've heard many stories as COVID-19 you know for the past several months has been on the lips of everybody of course and and every media outlet that there is explain to us what this is about because this is interesting and intriguing so 
for those who are, may not know, uh, coronaviruses are you know, a family of viruses, the coronavirus, and there's a number of viruses that actually regularly infect humans, uh, circulate within our population, and cause a common cold each year. And previous studies have shown that you can actually detect these other coronaviruses, these ones that just cause the common cold, you could actually detect it in wastewater, along with a number of other, other pathogens, such as norovirus or poliovirus and stuff like that. So there's, there was ample evidence that you could actually detect these pathogens in wastewater. The first goal in our hypothesis, and we thought it was pretty sound, was that if you went into the wastewater treatment facility and tried to detect the novel coronavirus, could we do it? And we were pretty... We were pretty confident that we'd be able to do it based on the previous studies of other coronaviruses. And so that was the first step, was just going out, trying to optimize our protocols, streamline them, and identify whether we could detect it. And so that, that was really the early step, stages of the process, just getting samples and going through different ways of how we were going to extract the coronavirus genetic material, which is RNA, and then also then how we were going to detect it if there was potential... And then once we kind of got going and we, we were able to show, like, yes, we can detect it, Jordan really had the foresight to be collecting samples, daily samples from the New Haven Wastewater Treatment Facility, and, and that started on March 19th. And so this was really at the, at the beginning of sort of the uptick of cases in New Haven County. We had, at that time, we had already started seeing quite a number of cases in Fairfield and New York City, and it was just starting to way, make its way up the uh, 95 corridor into New Haven. And so it was right at the beginning as case numbers started going up that we started getting, collecting daily samples. And we've been, we've been collecting, um, collecting there ever since. So let me ask you this, why was it important to do that other than the fact that you wanted to see, as you said, if you could, and you worked out that you could do it, you know, what did it actually reveal? What did it help us with by way of knowing how coronavirus was active in the area? So yeah, it's, it's, it's more than just a, um, just saying like, can we do it? So the, the goal of this was um, to be able to see if we could use it to get an idea of the community-wide burden of coronavirus. So on an individual basis, you can get a test and you can be determined whether or not you are infected or not. But early on during the pandemic, tests were not readily available. It's hard to get the test. Oftentimes, your results would be, you know, you want to get your results for a week or more after you had your test taken. And so to really try to get an understanding of how wide and how many people were infected in the community, uh, we thought that this would be a good proxy to understand how much activity was occurring. Because in addition to those people who are symptomatic and will go and get tested, there's also a large number of people that show no symptoms or very mild symptoms and may never get tested or can't be tested, uh, especially early on when there was a limited number of tests. They really, they really winnowed down who was going to be tested and who wasn't. It was really hard to understand how big of a problem it was in New Haven County. And so the idea was if we can look at the amount of genetic material of the virus in the wastewater and quantify how much genetic material is there, that that should be a good proxy for how widely distributed or how wide the pandemic was affecting sort of the New Haven community. 
And so that was really the goal was to see, okay, with the way that the individual testings were going at the time, you know, limited number of tests and not everybody being tested, we didn't really have a good understanding of how widespread it was in the community. And so this was really what we were trying to do with this study was to to get a better understanding of that. And I'm sure there's a lot of data because, as you said, you started doing this way back in March. I mean, what did it start to reveal once you were looking into it and you were, you know, you were extrapolating results? The big findings that we we got from this it was it was really impressive. We started you know working with a number of people at Yale. You know they were able to take our data and what we could see is we could we can see on a daily basis that the amount of coronavirus genetic material in the wastewater was going up. You know and it, and it came up and had this nice sort of uh, peak bell shaped curve type of peak and and then what we did is we actually then mapped that back to the number of cases that were being reported. In New Haven County. And then we also mapped it back to the number of cases of hospitalized cases. So how many people were admitted to the hospital. And so when, when we actually did that and doing some mathematical modeling, we're actually able to show that surveilling the wastewater acted as a leading indicator of the amount of cases that we were going to be seeing, um, both the number of cases diagnosed and the number of severe cases that are hospitalized. And so specifically with hospitalizations, we found that it was a leading indicator by about three days. We were detecting an increase in coronavirus genetic material in the wastewater three days prior to an increase in the number of hospitalizations. And that this also, when you looked at it as the total number of just confirmed cases, we also saw that that served as a leading indicator um, anywhere from you know, two to seven days for the number of confirmed cases. So at the end, really what this study showed is that you can actually look at the wastewater and get sort of, you're you're sort of looking into the the future, but also it gives the public health officials to implement strategies to help curb. So do we need to introduce new restrictions or do we need to go to online uh, schools? Do we, these types of things you can, you can then sort of adjust your, what your public health policy is and how how strongly you need to address something based on this data prior to a lot of cases. So it just, it gives you an, an earlier warning sign. And so that's, that's really the power of this study. Which is absolutely amazing because I'm assuming any sort of like advanced warning or any sort of like advanced notice that you can get when you're dealing with, uh, you know, a virus or a pandemic must be so helpful, you know, in so many situations. Obviously, it was helpful for Connecticut. I mean, is this process, is it going to be rolled out uh, beyond Connecticut, do you know, or or has it been rolled out beyond Connecticut? I know other um, places are doing this um, to a degree. But there's there's different ways you can collect collect this wastewater, and you know we're really collecting it at a point in the in the processing of the wastewater um, where a lot of the solids have sort of um, sedimented out, and they've settled out, and so we're actually able to go there and and take a, a sample of this more a solid phase, which is called the sludge, is the primary sludge, and by doing that you um, really are sort of concentrating uh, everything in the community into uh, a a single sample. And a lot of other places that have started implementing similar strategies, and there are some private companies that are actually doing this, is they're doing actually the wastewater. So this is the wastewater affluent. So this is what is running through the wastewater pipes as it goes to the treatment facility. So things haven't settled out. Within that, you have, you know, you have all of your 
dishwater and shower water and all this other water that gets in there. So your, your samples gets very dilute in there and it can make it challenging to consistently detect, I guess, quantifiable levels of virus in the wastewater. So, you know, one of the things too is by our study was we were showing that really primary sludge was a very good source of material um, compared to just sampling the wastewater fluent. So I know other places are starting to do it. We have in Connecticut, we've uh, just in the last uh, two weeks, we've gotten some funds from the state to expand our current efforts. So we've continued doing this through the whole pandemic since March 19th in New Haven County. And we're in, and we're in contact with Mayor Elker uh, weekly about what our results are showing. But we've just recently expanded it to other sites, including Bridgeport and Hartford, New London, Stanford. And so we're expanding to other treatment facilities in the city where there are larger urban hubs. Because um, obviously, a lot of Connecticut has a lot of semi-rural areas where a lot of people are on, um, on septic systems. So we can't actually get, you know, everybody, but, you know, in these larger urban areas, we can definitely apply the same technique. And we're start, we just started rolling that out in the last two weeks, last week, really. So basically what you're doing is you're hitting the centres which have been hit the hardest, uh, you know, here in Connecticut, New Haven County, Harvard, all of those areas really have been sort of the, the hotspots for COVID-19. So it makes sense that you obviously target those areas. Right. Yeah, exactly. So that, that is the key goal. So yeah, we might be missing a large area of the state due to lower densities of the population, but most of the activity, like you said, is in these urban environments. You can see this repeatedly from state to state all over the world. It's these the big urban urban environments that are really driving this. Now, another thing, of course, we mentioned it at the top of this interview, is this new test. It's a saliva test. Explain to us about that, because there's been a lot of press about it lately. Right. So, you know, early on, the diagnostic test and the sampling for coronavirus was done through what are called nasal pharyngeal or MP swabs. And, you know, this is a process I'm sure a lot of uh, listeners have seen this done or had it done themselves now, you know, with this long, sort of skinny uh, swab that they stick up your nose, all running around a couple times. And a lot of people find this very, uh, very uncomfortable uh, and uh, irritating. And so early on, it was showing that these MP swabs, the diagnostic test that was done, so this PCR approach, was actually very accurate and very sensitive. Problem was, they had about a 70% detection rate when doing MP swabs. So about 30% of actual infections were missed by doing an MP swab. And really, this had to do with how the samples are collected. So you know, you really have to have somebody that is a trained health professional acquiring the sample, and everybody has to be trained similarly, and they all have to be done properly in order to get actually a good sample um, from the MP swabs. And so while if you got a good sample, it could be very sensitive, it's good, but there was a lot of variability in how the samples were collected, leading to this 30% sort of false negative rate. A woman at, at Yale, Ann Wiley, working with our group down there, she started looking at saliva, if you could use saliva as a good diagnostic. And what she found is that saliva was actually just as good, if not better, than nasal pharyngeal swabs. The advantage of just doing the saliva is, one, it can be uh, self-administered. Uh, you don't have to have a professional healthcare provider taking the test. And and it does obviously doesn't require any you know, it's just not uncomfortable or, you know, there's, it's not invasive at all. It's pretty, you know, just spit in the tube. Um, and so having this sort of data that Anne had generated, um, we, we then wanted to take it to the next step saying, okay, you know, as I discussed earlier in this podcast about these supply chain issues that we had, um, we wanted to say, see if we can actually streamline this and sort of 
get rid of some of the steps and some of the issues with these potential bottlenecks and develop a new assay that we can actually just take saliva, do a short little treatment with an enzyme that is uh, you can buy from many, many vendors, and then heat it up for five minutes and then actually put it right directly into PCR. So we, we're getting rid of that RNA extraction step. And that's probably the most, probably one of the most expensive parts of this process is actually doing the RNA extraction. So if you can get rid of that, you're removing one of the steps that's expensive, requires you know trained professionals to actually do that and, and also relieves and, and removes another potential bottleneck um, within the process as far as time, as far as resources. And so the, the idea was then to, okay, can we validate taking saliva directly, not doing an RNA extraction, and testing this with multiple different you know, PCR kits, different PCR machines, the enzyme I mentioned earlier, which is proteinase K, trying it from different vendors. Try to, we, the goal is to try to make this, um, to validate this assay with as many different vendors items out there as possible so that when people started using it, uh, they weren't relying on any one company. Um, you wouldn't have price gouging from any one company. Um, and so that was the goal was to try to streamline everything, shorten the processing time, shorten the how it's collected or, or you know, not, not really having to rely on um, trained healthcare pro providers. Um, and really trying to make it more egalitarian as far as which which resources and which reagents can be used. How much more accurate is the saliva direct test? And more importantly, what does it actually tell you? Does it tell you that you've got COVID-19 or that you had it? This is a test that will detect whether or not you have it currently. So this is uh, looking at the genetic material as this is not one of the, this is not a immune test to look at you know, whether you've developed immunological response or antibodies to, to the virus. So this is if you are infected. As far as the sensitivity is concerned, we found that it's highly sensitive. The idea is that if you go to the hospital and you're sick, an NP swab is probably the option for you. Okay, that's probably going to be your best option, or or doing saliva and going through the full RNA extraction. You know, either do an MP swab or saliva with the full protocol is probably your best option if you are sick. The idea with this is to try to develop it to do rapid screening and large-scale community-wide screening to help be able to identify those who are maybe pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic, so without symptoms, so that they can quarantine early on people who might not meet the criteria needed to acquire a test. And so with that, we do lose a little bit of sensitivity compared to doing the full RNA extraction and assay. But we can significantly increase the number of people tested at a much lower cost. So that's really the advantage of this. And I suppose as we see potential for schools reopening and things like nursing homes and even sort of like uh, prisons as well, where we see inmates getting COVID-19, this sort of uh, lower cost and as you say more rapid testing, I'm guessing is going to be beneficial for those environments where you've got larger groups of people. Oh, yeah, exactly. I mean, that was that was the, the idea of mind here. And so that's really what we're trying to do is say, how can we make this so we can do testing for population screening 
as opposed to really looking at individuals who are infected. So exactly the target, what we're looking for. And how can people get this new test? Right now, I mean, this really just came out. Um, the FDA approval just came out. One thing that this test is not, it's not a kit. It's not like you have to order it from us or get it from us. This is a protocol. So, you know, one thing about being in academia, we're not, in this case, we're not trying to make money, right? We're not trying to develop kits and sell them. This is a protocol that we hope to distribute to all certified diagnostic labs that want to use it. And one thing that we're trying to do is set up right now with the legal department at Yale is that if people are going to use this protocol, that they cannot mark up the price. We, we're really trying to keep the price down. So if people want to use the saliva direct protocol, which is FDA approved now, they have to agree to not mark up the price above a, a certain percentage, a very small increase. And so right now we're trying to, you know, we're working with the legal department and everything at Yale. There's a lot of behind, behind the scenes stuff that I, I'm not even um, involved in. Um, trying to get this so that we can roll out this protocol and get it distributed to places that can use it. I don't know what that timeline is. It hasn't started yet, although we've had a thousand inquiries already about how do they get this protocol? How do they go about getting started and started doing this? So I guess that the fact that it got emergency FDA approval means that once all of those things are worked out that you've just been talking about, that you know this test will go across the nation. Well, I mean, that, that is the hope. I mean, you, you, never, you never know. I mean, yeah, things come out and there's a lot of buzz at, about them um, at the beginning and then, you know, they kind of go away. But that is the hope. In the coming months that universities and prison, just communities as a whole can start taking this protocol and using it out there. And, you know, so time will tell how highly it is adopted and used you know, within our nation's plan or if it's, I don't know, internationally adopted. The fact that there is another test and another way for us to help detect uh, COVID-19, uh, however widespread it goes at the end of the day by way of a protocol and who uses it, uh, the fact that uh, it has been developed is incredible and just a, an extra tool in the, uh, in the toolbox, isn't it, for everybody as we continue to live with COVID-19. Doug, it's been a real pleasure talking to you and obviously a huge amount of work by yourself and obviously a team of people as well. As they say, it does take a village. And thank you, obviously, for sharing this invaluable information about these unique insights. Science is important and fortunate to obviously have great scientists here in Connecticut. Thanks again for talking to us. Thank you, Brian. It was a, it was a pleasure talking with you today. And you can find out more about the work of the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station at their website, ct.gov forward slash C-A-E-S. And if you want more information about the COVID-19 wastewater project or saliva direct that we discussed in the podcast, then head over to the website covidtrackerct.com. That's all from this edition of Coasting Country. Thank you for listening. And we'll be dishing up another serving of science for you very soon. 